that we all know and love. So we have two very special guests joining us today. Uh, the first is someone you know very well because he runs the site that hopefully you guys uh, are continuing to enjoy every day. And that is my partner in crime, JB. JB, how you doing today? Good. I like how I'm a, I'm a guest on, the, on our own pod, but it is true because you've been running this uh, really well, but glad to be on. It's like um, you're the parent that buys me the house. I'm the kid. I live in the house. <laughs> you bought the house. You pay the mortgage. Um, so it's your house. I let you party in it. Yeah, but you know, you still sleep in the guest room. I, I get the master suite. Um, we like to keep things you know, orderly like that. Um, <laughs> the second guest that we have on, um, I, I wish I could you know, be all coy and say that uh, I, I don't absolutely idolize this person but i can't do that because you all know me and i'm honest i'm, I'm going to tell it to you how it is um this is someone i have idolized for a long time because i have read him for seems like a very long time uh back from when he was with the wall street journal he's now of course with 538 uh providing for my money the best nba coverage that there is out there and that of course is chris herring chris how you doing I'm great. I, I really, again, we talked about this off air, but just really appreciate um, the kind words. I think that I would always be the person to say that I think they're a little bit strong and, and heavy, but I but I really do appreciate that, and I don't take it lightly. Thank you. Uh, yeah, of course, man, and, and thank you for for joining us. Um, I so you wrote a piece uh, a few weeks ago about Frank Nilakina, which is kind of the genesis of of why we're getting you on today, but. Uh, before we get to that, I'll just you know ask you flat out: Do you uh, do you ever miss the Knicks beat? I do. I mean, the the funny thing, and, and people always there was one person I want to say when I wrote that Frank piece that there's always like at least two or three people in those comment threads that are like you know admit it you do miss us a little bit don't you? And I, <laughs> the truth is, yeah. First of all, this is like my everyday life for five years. Um, which, you know, maybe five years in the grand scheme of things isn't that long. There are people that have covered the team for longer than that. But, um, you know, I'm still pretty new to the industry. I mean, I've been out of college for less than 10 years. Um, and you take the fact that, um, you know, just being a journalist, the, the first few years of that, I wasn't covering sports at all. I covered the the, the NFL for, uh, for a year in there. And so... I haven't been doing this that long, and the vast majority of the time that I've been covering the league has involved covering the Knicks specifically. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I don't pay more attention to what they're doing or, you know, what their numbers look like or, you know, if all things are equal, trying to watch their game, uh, particularly when they're playing at home and get a chance to hear the fan base there, you know, erupt when a big play happens or to get a chance to kind of hear what Clyde and Mike Breen are saying. So, Absolutely. I, I miss that element of it. You know, I miss people that I enjoyed covering the team with and stuff like that and still keep up on the team that way. Um, but, it, I mean, it was a great, great job. And so um, I'd be lying if I said that I don't miss that. And also just the idea, 
this was the only team that I covered full time. And so not doing that anymore, I kind of feel like it's it's harder in some ways because you've got to try to become an expert on basically every team, which anybody that does this knows that they, you know, they have a little bit of a fear of trying to write about something. I don't know how you do that. The by idea, the way. yeah, that that would be my biggest thing that they don't yeah. watch them uh, enough to really critique what they're seeing on a night-to-night basis, or to write a big in-depth piece on something where they're only getting to watch that player or that team maybe once a week at most, and that that's hard um, because you you obviously want to show that you've done your homework and your research, and then you're not just kind of talking out of your butt, and so. Um, and so I miss being able to just kind of know exactly what I'm talking about without even having to second guess it and without having to kind of go back and, you know, watching film over and over again. I watched Knicks games twice, um, you know, when I was in the beat, once when I was there in person, and then would try to kind of watch a sped up version at home. And so um, I, I haven't dug into a team like that for 82 games since I left the, the beat. And so that's obvious. But yeah, I, I missed that part of. Um, you know, feeling like I'm just totally plugged in all the time because that that's something you only get to do when you're a beat reporter. Yeah, no, totally. Um, and I, <laughs> it's funny you say you used to watch every game twice when you were on the beat because I think some fans um, look at uh, maybe one or two of the beat reporters on the team today and question whether they watch the games once. Uh, but we <laughs> we won't we won't go there. So um, I know when when JB and I were were talking about you know, kind of setting up for the piece. Um, well, JB, why don't, um, why don't you take it? Because you're the, you're the film guy. So, uh, what were we talking about? Yeah, no, no, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you in particular to the piece that you wrote. What I found interesting is obviously at 538, uh, you know, the focus of most of the pieces is going to be data driven pieces. And, um, you know, I've always been a big fan of the site even before, you know, getting into sports because my my real life job um, is an economist, so I do a lot of actually data wow. work. Um, you know, outside of this, right? So I'm usually looking for data. Funny enough, before I look for film to explain what I'm seeing, and in a in a prior world, I wrote about baseball because that was the the easiest sport to apply the data. And what I found in basketball was. While the advanced metrics are improving, and especially on offense, there's still a pretty big gap between what the defensive metrics tell you and what you can see on film in terms of how a player impacts a play. So I was just wondering, when you were approaching this piece on Frank, and you obviously you know, went ahead and you did incorporate a lot of data, partly to kind of explain maybe what he doesn't do offensively to counterweight with what he did defensively, but did, was that a challenge for you? Did you have to think about it differently knowing, or just maybe even general on pieces, how you present defense because the data, while again improved, isn't just isn't the same as what you can see on film? Defense, I mean, that that's kind of the, the last frontier of, at least from a writer's perspective, teams always want to know more. And even once they find a way to perfectly uh, enumerate what defense is and how you calculate it, um, teams are always still going to want more information with which to evaluate these players. And, and I think you're, you're kind of even seeing that now as far as wanting um, the right to kind of mental health stuff, which, you know, th- th- I think that's a whole different conversation. But uh, defense will always be difficult for a writer to kind of put in the, to layman's terms. And, and I feel like there are some things that help. I mean, 
the one number that kind of jumps out at me from last year that I thought was just stunning was uh, Andre Robertson with Oklahoma City and the fact that the four-man lineup around him with Westbrook, Carmelo, Paul George, and Steven Adams went from being best in the league defensively to dead last when Robertson wasn't part of it. Um, when you plugged any other person into that fifth spot that Robertson was in, and just and obviously you saw it kind of play out that way on the court as well, where they went from being kind of a top tier upper echelon team to just being horrendous when he wasn't there, and obviously almost missing the playoffs and and so I guess a lot of those teams at the back end of the playoff race almost missed the playoffs as far as um, you know how close that Western Conference race was. But that, that to me, is like a, a really good indicator that over a certain number of minutes, um, once you've kind of broken out of that small sample size portion, you realize that there's something to that number. It's not just random, that they're so much better on defense with Robertson than they are without. And I, I think, you know, if you watch him play long enough and you pay attention to just him and, and not focus on everybody else um, – you, you tend to come to that conclusion anyway, but the numbers obviously validate it. Um, with Frank, I mean, I think there were some numbers like that too. I think it would be hard for a point guard over the course of a full season. What did Frank play last year? Like 78 games or something like that. He played most games last year. He did. Um, it, it would be hard after a while, unless you were playing with a really, really good big, to be anywhere near uh, close to the top of the league and pick and roll defense, particularly as a ball handler, um, guarding the ball handler without being decent, at least. Right. You know, and, and right. to be decent as a rookie on defense is noteworthy because we know that that's often a place where people are really going to struggle, um, particularly when they're playing with a team that's not good on defense. And I think, you know, obviously the Knicks have not been good on that end of the floor in a long time. And so, I mean, I think that was all noteworthy, but his numbers kind of jumped off the charts. When not only when you compare him to other rookies, but just the rest of the league as a whole, with how big a pick and roll league this has become, I think you can pretty fairly say that that's probably not just happenstance that his numbers were that good. And particularly when you watch his film, uh, especially the the film you guys have put together, just kind of game to game stuff. That's not coincidence that he's that good on on defense. Statistics would show you that. But just watching him for a little bit, I think you get a very clear impression that that's, that's not random. He's just really, really good on defense. Uh, he has a really high IQ on that side of the floor, which is not something you see at the beginning of someone's career, particularly when they're that, they're that young. And so, I mean, I, I don't even think that I was really moving heaven and earth to make those points or to prove those points. I think that you right. guys have done a lot of that work. But that, that's just the reality of it is that he's a really, really, really good defender for someone as young as he is at a position that – is as difficult as the one he plays. Right. And then I guess this is a good question where you've been removed from the beat a little bit is I think within our little Knicks world, uh, people have very strong feelings about Frank. Like I, I always say, it's funny. I could put out, you know, Noah Vonley could, could do a 360 dunk and I could tweet out that, you know, that video and, you know, a couple people will like it. Frank could hit a three-point shot that everyone else in the league hits and it will get crazy engagement just because Knicks fans are that excited <laughs> about seeing anything he does. So I guess I'm interested kind of from your perspective, having gone deep again to do the piece on Frank. So 
you know, it's not like you've been removed from the team, so therefore removed from what he's done. But you also now do have a wider lens. You know, what, I mean, I guess, you know, you're saying in the piece, there's obviously the promise in terms of what he can do already defensively. So if right. he were to add some offense, that, that makes a big difference. But, I mean, yeah, I guess give sort of that perspective from the outside a little bit in terms of, Given how good his defense is, shouldn't Knicks fans be excited over the idea that, yeah, if he can just develop his offensive game a little bit, you know, you brought up Roberson, he can be a player that, again, maybe not the first, second, or even third best player in your team, but a guy who, if on a good team, uh, can really be a difference maker in his own way. Yeah, I mean, I, so your first point and, and kind of the, the different levels of engagement that you see from the fans, I, I think Nick fans... Um, and I've written this before. I, I think I was the first person to kind of um, to draw the conclusion. I think that uh, when I was researching something about how kind of disconnected the Knicks front office was as far as kind of developing players, and um, when I was doing a series on kind of the different problems with the organization, I think I pointed out that the Knicks had not re-signed, kind of just kept a player, a homegrown player, and developed him the whole time and then re-signed him to a second deal since Charlie Ward in like 90, 90, they drafted him in like 92 or 93 and then did yeah, that's right. re-signed to like 90, 97 or something like that. Um, and I think Jared Dubin pointed out that they have done it since I wrote that. Hardaway is the first guy I did it with, but Hardaway left the organization. So I feel like he doesn't even truly count either, at least a multi-year deal. I think David Lee, uh, they re-signed for one year. Uh, before they kind of swung for the fences with the LeBron sweepstakes. But anyway, um, part of it is that I think Nick fans, whether they mean to be or not, are really, really protective of young players because they so rarely get a chance to watch them develop. Um, they trade them away. They bury them on the bench. They, you know, kind of come half-baked as far as um, – you know, how developed they are. Uh, Shumpert was an example of that as well. Uh, Landry Fields was another example. Hardaway obviously had a lot of offensive skill and still does, but struggles on the other end of the floor. And so it's kind of like, it feels like they give up on guys. You know, you go all the way down the list. And I just kind of feel like they they see a, a third of the way or a halfway finished product, and then they kind of give up on the other half and deal them away for something or don't re-sign them. And so I think Nick fans kind of, have this everlasting hope, uh, both because, you know, what else are you going to do when the team has been as poor as it has been for the last few years? But also, you know, the, the, the fact that the team for a long time has had a lot of bets in place already. And so um, you, you want to kind of root for someone and hope that somebody becomes a star because you kind of need that to move forward. So I think that's why people get so excited with Frank, because he already does have a really nice skill set when he does stuff on offense that, is pretty. I kind of feel like it really stands out because it's kind of a surprise. Um, but he has stuff that you can't really teach. And I, I feel like he's, you know, I've noted it in the piece, but I feel like he's become a little bit more comfortable with the, the little spin move that he uses and the little floaters that he uses. Um, you know, I, I still remember this one pass, I think it was against Brooklyn, that he made to O'Quinn in transition last yep. year. And I was just kind of like, where did that pass come we, from? We remember it well here in New York. <laughs> where he, like, threw it from the backcourt and it was just like whoa you know he throws this one-handed pass and so I, I get that he's like behind pro you know uh, he, he's probably a little slower to progress than some people would like on that side of the ball but 
you know, you'd like to think that some of those things he can learn. You can, he, he doesn't have an ugly jump shot. And so the idea that maybe that becomes more consistent with time. Um, they play him off the ball in a fair number of situations. I, I didn't even realize it until I saw the beat writers tweeting about it that he had never had a, a start as, like, the lone point guard until this season. And so when you realize that, like, it's really difficult to learn how to play – particularly play at a, at a specific position when you're not getting opportunities to do it by yourself with no repercussions. And I, I felt like last year he constantly had to look over his shoulder. Hornacek was in a, in a must-win situation, or at least he felt like he was and probably was, given what happened. Um, it's hard to play like that without worrying constantly like what's going to happen to you if you make a mistake or if you miss a shot or if you miss three shots. And and that's the one thing, like, I, I like Fisdale personally, but I kind of worry a little bit that, you know, even as he's just trying to kind of find rotations that work, um, that the kind of the yo-yo behavior with Frank, which I felt like he dealt with a lot last year, that for most people that might be okay, but you probably don't want to do that with Frank just because you already wonder if he's kind of second-guessing a lot of what he's doing. And I think Mike Verkunov wrote that. Uh, a couple days ago that basically that Frank always kind of thought about taking jumpers and didn't want to be seen as someone that was kind of taking a shot out of turn. And so um, you kind of have to be even more careful with guys like that to not really kill their confidence when they they do have an off game or two. Um, you know, I tweeted this a couple days ago, and I still believe it. I, I To me, as long as Frank is playing as hard as he can on defense – and not making boneheaded plays on defense, which he rarely does, um, I would be inclined to just kind of give him free run as far as uh, the offensive stuff. Let him play through it. I mean, this is kind of a year where you're not you're not going to make the playoffs anyway. That's not really the aim anyway. I understand wanting to kind of mix and match lineups a little bit just to see what you have, but um, I think you have to be very careful of not making it seem as if it's a punishment if he plays poorly on offense because, I mean – I, I don't know. I just I, I feel like whenever I read about Chauncey Billups, uh, there was this great story that ESPN the magazine did on Chauncey Billups. I think it was by Tom Friend um, years and years ago about how long it took him to really develop and to kind of mature into something. Uh, and it was because teams didn't know what role to use him in. And he had different coaches every year, different systems every year, got traded in the middle of his rookie year and just kind of never really latched on. Um and and then once he did kind of have a stable situation, how much better he got and how much more comfortable he felt and how little he had to worry about external factors. And once he did that, just how solid a player he was for a long time. And so I think about that a lot. That's not true of every player. I think Chauncey's a special case. But you don't want to kind of give up too early on Frank or anyone for that matter. And I... I there are times that I think about that, and that's kind of where if there was something that the Knicks weren't getting the most out of over the years, that's probably the thing I would point to most or second most is just that they never really seem to let guys fully develop. And it was kind of if they turn into a good player, great, but we're not, you know, it felt as if they kind of stopped watering the players and kind of stopped watering that process after a while, after like two years, and it was just kind of like, oh, it didn't work. And I felt like even with Tim, that's kind of how it felt is that they – you don't do that. You don't water someone and kind of develop someone on your own. You end up paying somebody else to do it. And it kind of felt as if they sent him to the Hawks and then 
you know, brought him back and brought him back on a much bigger contract. And I think Tim has been fine. I think this, you know, he's been better already than I imagined he would be um, when they drafted him. I, I was kind of um, not that into the idea of drafting Tim, and I said that pretty vocally uh, from having watched him uh, as a Michigan guy, having watched him play at Michigan. So, um, but but that said, I just kind of feel like you end up paying the price if you don't develop people when you have the opportunity. Well, I'm really happy you brought that up because the thing that I know I've been struggling with uh, over the last couple of weeks, really, since your since your piece came out, um, and I think the thing that is concerning to a lot of Knicks fans is, uh, so your piece dropped, uh, I believe, the day after he got that first start as uh, a true point guard against Golden right. State. Looked great. Um, he had a, a game after that, another another solid effort, and then it's been inconsistency. Since then, and you noted in your piece actually that Knicks officials have expressed privately that they have faith in him and that he'll he'll develop into an impact player on offense. And I, you know, I, I'm very glad to hear that. And you know, over since your piece came out, he's been now out of the starting lineup. There was one game where he only played five and a half minutes, and I I know you know about that because you referenced it in a uh, I think responding to somebody else's tweet. Um, so my my thinking about this, because on one hand we have Fisdale, who since the day he got hired has trumpeted development, 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 um, and he has obviously some background in that area. So, and uh, you know, the other thing I, I was thinking about is even Zach Lowe in a podcast he did at the beginning of the season said, you know, he thought it was okay that they were uh, starting him off ball in the starting lineup to begin the season. I'm just wondering, is is there? Is there only one path to growing a point guard in the NBA? And, and is that path got to have him start every game and you got to have him play as the primary ball handler, you know, whatever, 25, 30 minutes a night? Or, and this is more just to your experience covering basketball, is it sometimes beneficial to, especially when a guy is trying to learn this position, like the game that he got pulled after five minutes, he was very out of sorts. I, to me, reading it, he seemed like he was kind of in his own head. Can there be a benefit to easing up off the gas a little bit, um, maybe letting a guy play some off-ball? Uh, you know, is there this gray area, or do you think, especially since you have spent time studying Frank, that it's more toss him out there, give him the lead ball handling duties, and let him take his lumps and, and have at it? I mean, I, I tend to think that... Uh everybody's a different case, but I mean, one, one person that I think about a little bit, and it's not, you know, it's not the lofty Chauncey example I just threw out a, a few minutes ago, but, you know, example of someone that I think has played pretty decently, who's a little bit older, and now any thought of him being like a star in the league is pretty much faded. DeLon Wright hmm. from the Raptors, I think, you know, has been, you know, he was someone that, is a little bit older than Frank. I, well, I guess a lot older, just when you consider how long he was in college. He's, I think he's 25 or 26 years old. He's a first-rounder, later in the first round. And not only is he not a starter, and probably not going to be for most teams, um, he's playing behind Kyle Lowry. And really, at this point, he's kind of behind Fred Van Vliet as well. Now, the difference, though, is that he he plays... I mean, first of all, he's, he's longer, he's tall... Um, but he's kind of in a role where they kind of play two guards off their bench, two point guard types off their bench, two guys that can run the offense off the bench. And so I, I think in their situation, that is a team that has become very 
positionless to some extent. Um, you know, you feel like Serge is kind of the only guy that is really a big in their starting lineup, and when it's not him, it's Valanciunas. Um, but you've basically got four guys that can kind of switch, and maybe Lowry's a little small to be considered in that exact same group, but a, a team that can make use of the guys they've got out there, it doesn't quite matter who's handling the ball because everybody's capable of doing it. Even Siakam has kind of gotten into the rhythm of handling the ball a lot more. Um, and you just kind of let it go from there. Uh, not everybody's a great shooter. Uh, DeLon Wright is not a great shooter, but he can handle the ball enough. He can pass the ball enough. He's long enough to defend capably two or three positions the way Frank is. Um, and, you know, at a certain point, I, I think to some people that would be a disappointment. Frank was drafted a lot higher than 20th. Um, you know, Frank is in a position where I think if he, you know, there would be no complaints if he were to kind of develop into a star and people still hope for that based on the fact of how early it is in this process. But if he's not that, and let's say you go get Kevin Durant this summer, which I know that's the hope, you know, a lot of people are saying that they think he's out and this week hasn't really helped to kind of, uh, Run counter. To that. Knicks I'm fans right. are, are dancing in the streets. Yes. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, like <laughs> counter to that has like come up this week. Obviously, it's been a weird week with Golden State. But I mean, it, all of a sudden, obviously, you want Frank to be a star. You want him to be able to score much better than he does now. But if he doesn't develop into a much, much cons- more consistent score than he is now, or a really, really top flight offensive option, and you get Durant and you have him paired with Porzingis. How many shots left over do you think you're going to have anyway? I mean, you still yeah, yeah. want Frank to develop more than this offensively because you don't want him to be – mainly you don't want him to be a liability. That's the right, thing. Right, but right, the right. thing is if you go out and you get Durant, and depending on who else you have on this team, you still have Hardaway there. All of a sudden you'd be looking at a lineup that was something like uh, you would have Frank, you'd have Hardaway, you would have Porzingis, and you'd have Durant – you don't have that many shots left over anyway. At that point, you need someone who's a, a smart player, a smart passer, and preferably someone that can knock down open shots. And I get, like I said, I get that Frank isn't there yet, at least not consistently. But all of a sudden, you would go from needing what you think to be like a, a star to needing someone that can just kind of fit in the complementary, supplementary role. And that would be okay. And, and especially when yeah. we're talking about someone that's still 20 years old. He's still capable of doing more than that, and life would become a lot easier for him. Like, they don't have anyone that is sucking in the defense the way that they normally would with a Porzingis or something like that. So, and the numbers with Porzingis are very, very positive. Now, the offensive numbers are obviously not ideal. Uh, and I pointed that out in my piece, too, that the Knicks score a lot less than they normally do when Porzingis and Frank are on the floor together, but they also defend the hell out of everybody. And so, your, your wants and needs would change quite a bit. Um, like, you wouldn't want Frank to be a guy that needs yeah, score, shots right. to get going anyway. And I think that's kind of worth pointing out, is that it'd be different if this guy were a gunner. I mean, he's a guy that is a little bit hesitant on offense. Um, I wouldn't put him in the Robertson category yet. He could do more than that. He can shoot better than that. Um, and, and, you know, I think part of it is just the role he's been asked to play. Like, if you want him to be a pure point guard all the time, that may not work, but if you stick him in a corner, that's not going to work either. And so I think there might be kind of a, a happy medium there. Or, you know, maybe he'll develop as he gets more reps as the lead guy. In the yeah, right, because like I said, he, he's only 20. And exactly. no, I think the I think the point to bring up that's good is, you know, we like to attach where these guys are drafted 
to then project out where they should be. But, you know, if you the, the idea what that the Knicks haven't done that they're finally doing now is when you have multiple draft picks, you're not trading them away. You're actually even trying to add draft picks. You're doing that because you know there's going to be misses. And misses doesn't just mean you got a bust. It means you might have got a player higher than where he should have gone. But you hope you make up for that, as it looks like the Knicks might have done, with guys that you get lower than they should have gone, such as Mitchell Robinson. So to me, I think with Frank, you know, like you're alluding to, if he's on a good team and, you know, even Kevin Knox, you know, we didn't mention, I think the idea for him is he's going to be more of a guy who's going to have a higher usage once he develops. If he's on a team with multiple high usage players and he becomes this like super Swiss army knife uh, fifth guy on that on that roster who does all these intangible things. Well, then again, I know he doesn't look like he's the seventh pick in the draft, but for that team, that might be worth more than what the seventh pick that people envision. That's this high usage player. Um, so I think that's definitely true in terms of how you separate where they're drafted versus how they add the most value to your team. And and that's hard to do when your fan in the team is bad because you don't see the intangible things <laughs> equating into winning. So you're like, well, you know, what is this guy doing for me? Right. No, a hundred percent. I mean, that, it's very easy now to, you know, it must be frustrating, you know, as a Nick fan to kind of look at Boston and, you know, I, I, I follow, I don't know how or why I, I got to a place where I'm following so many Boston uh, bloggers or you know, people that are kind of like fans and bloggers and, and what have you. But they like the grumblings that you hear about their young guys from smart to Tatum and Brown and Rozier. And it's like, man, that's a hell of a thing to kind of grumble <laughs> or complain about with how they look, you know, and, and the fact that they have stars around that with Kyrie and Horford and, and Hayward, um, and, you know, that, that I think the reason you hear that grumbling a little bit is because you're starting to see the questions be raised about fit. Um, whereas with the Knicks, like you said, you can't think that far ahead yet if you're a fan. I, I would expect most can't at least where, um, you know, you're going to have that question at some point if you're doing things the right way. And if you get a star or two in the building as far as free agency to pair with Porzingis. But once that happens, I mean, we'll put it this way. If you actually do get Durant, next summer, it's going to create the question of kind of like what happens with Knox because he is a guy that, a great uh, point. you know, you're hoping that Porzingis will be, um, you know, well, I don't know. Different people will feel differently. I know when I was there, uh, you know, you thought and hoped that he would at some point become a, a five so that it becomes easier to play five out lineups. And, you know, if you have him and you have Durant, um, you have Knox, what have you. I mean, maybe you play them together as three, four, five. The versatility might be there to do that. Um, but who knows? You you may not need Knox quite as badly or to do the same things, though, if you bring in Durant. And so you, you, you've got to kind of be somewhat fluid and flexible about the way you think about these guys. Like, I get that it's more difficult to do that when you, you watch a team lay an egg and not really score um, or not play particularly well at a game against Orlando or what have you, because games like that, you just need somebody to really step up and fill the void when nobody else has it going. But this isn't a finished product. Um, the team next year could look very, very different, if for no other reason Porzingis being there, but obviously um, a big amount of money that you're expecting to have there to be able to go get 
somebody, whether it's Durant or somebody else or a number of other players to kind of come in and help you win. And so uh, it, it's you don't want to have finite thoughts on what someone is or can be in year two. I mean, even if even if Frank were playing better on offense, you, you still wouldn't want to really put a hard cap and say he has to be this. Uh, I mean, the guy's literally still growing <laughs> as far as how tall he is. I mean, so it's, it's kind of hard to say definitively what you hope or think someone will be. I'm, I'm so happy that you, you said that because I think a lot of fans um, may watch these games and draw certain conclusions. Meanwhile, as you just alluded to, there's a very real possibility um, considering Knox's growth, considering the possibility of KD or whomever, uh, even considering their draft pick this year, you know, that the best three or four offensive players on this team next year are, may very well not be here right now. Um, you know, when you throw in, obviously, KP coming back. Right. Um, I, so I, I think, why don't we end with this? I, I, my favorite line from your piece, um, and again, not that you're comparing these two guys strictly as players, but you threw out Ricky Rubio. And the reason why that kind of resonated with me is I think of all the players in the NBA today that um, in terms of like even – I feel like really knowledgeable basketball people still have vigorous disagreements about their uh, value to a team and how far a team can go if that, you know, they're your, you know, one of your key components. Rubio's that guy. And we're in year eight of Rubio. Um, it Does it feel like we're kind of heading there with Frank? Or do you have a sense that, you know, in this organization, you know, that again, it's a, it's a new team of people that's aboard. You know the league as well as anyone. Um, Perry's been around. Uh, you know, obviously Fisdale has paid his dues as an assistant coach and in the film room. Um, do you think after you know after several years with this organization that there's going to be clarity on Frank, or do you think you know we're going to be having you on a podcast three, four years from now asking you the same questions? Boy, I mean, I, I'll put it this way: I'm interested to see it. In part because, again, I, I think the way we think about players, the context changes completely if you're in a win-now mode. And so I think Frank could be incredible. Um, we, we're still probably a couple of years from figuring that out and exactly what his trajectory really is. But I, I do think that if Durant is to come here, and this is way more than I ever envisioned talking about Kevin Durant, it's not your all's fault. But I mean, I I think this summer is so massive in the sense that it could change kind of the way this front office has to think. Um, Durant all of a sudden is not a young guy anymore. Uh, He's, you know, he's in his prime. We don't know how long he'll be there. I mean, he's obviously younger than someone like LeBron. But I, I think if, if he does end up going to New York, all of a sudden, you've got to start trying to figure out how to win right now. And it just makes me curious of whether the Knicks would try to pair guys together to try to get other win now guys and try to shoot for the window that's there right then and now. Um, or if they would try to kind of, uh, kind of toe the line, which is essentially what they did with Carmelo uh, for a while where you had guys that were a little bit younger that you were kind of trying to be patient with and, I thought that's what they're doing with Porzingis and Carmelo, for instance. And I kind of felt like they could have made a decision earlier, probably needed to make a decision earlier about which direction they're going to take. Um, but, you know, if, if they do end up getting Durant, what becomes of some someone like Frank? You need cheap guys 
uh, on cheap contracts that can make a difference for you on either side of the floor. Frank hopefully will fit that as far as his offense and stuff. But boy, that, you know, that would create a really interesting question because I kind of feel like you, there's going to be pressure to kind of get somebody there, especially with, you know, the sorts of point guards that Durant has had before. He's never played with like a developing point guard before. He's had Very Russell true. Westbrook and he's had uh, obviously Steph Curry. And so that's a massive, massive difference. Um, so I don't know. I, I I, I tend to think that Rubio and Frank are a little bit different, if for another, no other reason. One, you know, it's funny. I, I think I even said on Twitter, um, when I compared Ricky and Frank in my story um, about being about the same size, or I, I'm sorry, about Frank being so much bigger than Ricky, um, one of my editors kind of wrote a note in the edit. She's like, you know, he's only an inch taller. And that obviously didn't take into account the fact that Frank has grown taller since, you know, he came into the league. Sure. And obviously the wingspan is the big, big difference. It's just oh, yeah. Frank's wingspan is monstrous and kind of unprecedented as far as guys at that position. So uh, I had to explain it to her a little bit. But, I mean, I just feel like there's reason to wait. You don't want to jump the gun here. I think Frank came into the league two years earlier than, than Ricky Rubio did. And so you've kind of got to take everything with a grain of salt um, when you're talking about his development. Because he's so young, and I don't think people realize how young he still is compared to the rest of the league, that there are other guys that are kind of, um, you know, that, that even guys that we think of as third, fourth-year guys that, you know, Frank is, is he's so much more new to the league than really anybody uh, when you really think about it, and basically was the youngest guy in the league last year. And so he, you look at a year like next year, like he still should kind of be a rookie next year if you're thinking about it that way and you're hopeful that at some point the experience that he's gotten at the age that he already is will really serve as a positive and that uh you know he'll turn on a light switch at some point who knows when that happens but i would venture to be patient with them uh if something changes if you do hit a massive home run or grand slam in free agency maybe you have to look at a little bit more but i i would be really reluctant to trade him just because i kind of feel like even on a team that is kind of a championship-ready team or a team that has those sorts of expectations, Robertson provides enormous value to Oklahoma City. And I think we've seen and we're still to some extent kind of seeing that they play a lot better with him than they do without him and the defensive rotations that you have with them as opposed to without him. Um, and particularly having someone on Frank's contract, I think you'd be foolish to not try to find a way to keep him and not get rid of him. Um, so I, I, I hope that you know, that they, they have the patience with them that they've kind of told me that they do. Granted, that stuff was kind of a year ago and last season when I talked to some of the people in the front office, but I'd hope that that's still there. And I, I get the impression with Fisdale, he's tinkering a little bit right now, but I would hope that he's not, he doesn't have an itchy uh, finger as, as far as the idea of just trying to find something else and move on to the next thing. I think he probably has a greater appreciation for good defense than the last couple coaches have. <laughs> I think so too. And and I think I speak for, well, maybe not all fans, but smart fans in saying, I hope um, Fizz, Steve Mills, and uh, Scott Perry uh, tuned into this episode of the podcast because, boy, do I agree with every word of what you just said. Um, <laughs> and, and, and as far as you talking about the KD stuff, your appearance on this pod was actually a whole ploy to speak KD to the Knicks into existence. <laughs> so you were you were actually uh, you know sorry we had to use you like that, but um, <laughs> you know we have bigger bigger things here. Listen, um, Chris, I, I could 
sit here for however long we've been on, another 45 minutes just thanking you for the opportunity. Um, this has been an absolute pleasure. And um, by the way, if anybody out there is listening and doesn't read Chris's work on a regular basis, he just had a – he writes about stuff that – and I hope you don't mind me blowing up your spot here – that nobody else is writing about. He just wrote an entire article on Kyle Lowry's taking charges, and it was awesome, and he made it interesting. Um, go out and like read everything he writes because if you're a Knicks fan and you're only reading Knicks stuff, you're not understanding the game as well as you you know probably could be. So and there's nobody better doing it than than Chris. So Chris, thank you um, for coming on. No, I, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I wonder to some extent if uh, I, I literally sat and kind of spent hours yesterday looking at film of something very very repetitive over and over again very similar to the idea of Kyle Lowry taking charges. So I have a similar idea, I think, that will come out Monday that touches on a, a former Knicks. I'm hoping that oh, I well. We didn't uh, we didn't talk about him, but I'll you know, we'll, maybe we'll save that for the next one. Yeah, yeah, no, that is okay. But I uh but I and it's not it's not Carmelo. Oh, way. it's not. Okay. It, oh, it okay. Way. Um, but I'm hoping that it comes out well because it's it's stuff I I still I mean I've been writing for years and even when I was at the Wall Street Journal covering the Knicks I uh, I remember the story that I was like most apprehensive about as far as not knowing how fans would respond to it ended up being the most read piece that I did if not on my entire time on the beat definitely to that point and so um, you know you guys and fans in general have just been incredible about supporting my work and kind of leaning allowing me to lean into kind of these weird strange ideas that um i have no clue exactly what i'm going to say or what i'm going to write about as i start digging into it but um but kind of it pays off in the end because it's not i realize i'm not the only person that either is curious about it or that finds it interesting and that that makes the work a lot more fulfilling for me when i realize that other people care about it just as much or find it just as interesting. And so I really appreciate you guys having me on and allowing me to walk you through it. Of course. Well, it's fulfilling for us too. So uh, thank you again. And uh, JB, uh, thank you for coming on your own podcast uh, <laughs> that, you have, that you have put up. And I know uh, you just want to say something really quick before we go. Yes, I just wanted to, to thank everyone. Um, if, if you don't know already, you've probably seen on Twitter or on the top of the website, you can go on nextfilmschool.com. We're trying to raise money for New York City families on Thanksgiving, getting hand-delivered boxes of turkey, stuffing, uh, you know, juice and dessert and everything you'd want on Thanksgiving that you know not every family gets. So far, from all the generosity of everyone out there, we have, I think, 62 meals paid for. And with some of the pledges that people have made based on various things that Knicks players do, whether it's, you know, a dollar for every point Tim Hardaway scores or... Uh, steal or block that uh, Mitchell Robinson has, I think we're trending close to 80 families that will uh, end up being being able to help out. So thank you everyone for that. There's still time. Monday is going to be the last day we'll do it. Um, but as everyone knows, we don't do advertisements on the site because we want to use the exposure of the site and any money we generate from the site for you know these local charities you know, that's why you don't hear an ad in this podcast. But, you know, nice people like Chris coming on hopefully helps us get exposure. And then we can use that exposure uh, to kind of combine a fun thing with people loving basketball and helping others out. So I just want to say at the end here, thank you for, you know, it's just been overwhelming the amount of people that have reached out and have made donations. Um, so, yeah, thanks, everyone, for that. And, and on that note, 
Um, Inez Cantor, if you're listening, I am donating a dollar for every one of your rebounds. You only got five the last game. You have two more games. <laughs> he's got to pick it up. That's I don't right. think. I, I mean, seriously, I made that pledge, and I don't think he's gotten as low as five rebounds all year. And sure enough, he gets five the other night. So hopefully, he goes out and uh, and pulls down, you know, twenty uh, tonight again. Although that, well, might... I'm, I'm happy to chip in something too. I didn't even realize that was happening, but I'm I'm happy to to throw in something just for you guys having me on. I really appreciate it again. Uh, well, oh, thank you, thank you, Chris, uh, thank you, JB, and of course, most of all, uh, thank you everybody out there for listening. Uh, to the Knicks Film School podcast. Check out the site. Check out Chris's work on 538. And we will speak to you again very soon. Giddy up.